Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. Senator Tim Scott launches his 2024 bid for president. So far, the only Republican senator in the running. How does he compare to other candidates? Everyone is a Democrat. That's what people in a New York county experienced when they got their voter IDs, even if they were Republican or independent. The company that owns Truth Social is suing the Washington Post for an article it published. The company says it's a hit piece full of false claims. Did academia fail when it came to discussing COVID-19 mandates? We take a look at what was said at a University of Chicago symposium. Senator Tim Scott kicking off today his race for 2024 presidential candidate at his alma mater in Charleston Southern University in South Carolina. And today's Melina Wise Cup is reporting from the venue. We're here in North Charleston, South Carolina, the hometown of Senator Tim Scott, where the 57-year-old is announcing his bid for the White House. So far, he's the only GOP senator to officially launch a campaign, and Scott is facing a tough and crowded GOP primary, particularly facing challenges from big names, including former President Donald Trump, whom Scott has some history with. So just recently, Former President Trump endorsed Senator Scott for his reelection to the Senate. And then you have a particular challenge here in the state of South Carolina that is Nikki Haley. She's the former governor of the state. She also has some history with Senator Tim Scott, appointing him to that Senate position in 2013. So it's an interesting lay of the field here in South Carolina with regards to the relationship between Senator Scott and his opponents. Now, of course, we can't forget to mention Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, whom also is expected to be a challenger of Tim Scott and others. He's expected to announce his bid for the presidency next week. Now, uh, Tim Scott, despite facing this crowded GOP primary, he's hopeful to set himself apart from these other candidates by pushing a message of faith and optimism. Here's Senator Scott's message to the nation today. And today, I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. But you see, this, this isn't just my story, it's all of our stories. The circumstances and the situations may be different. The details may change, but every single one of us are here because of the American journey. Where there were obstacles that became opportunities. And it appears that optimistic and positive tone is already resonating in the hearts of some South Carolina voters. We spoke to some Tim Scott supporters outside who lined up bright and early at 8.30, and they said that this is one of the qualities that really stands out about Senator Scott to them versus other candidates. We asked them why that is, as well as what they hope to see from the next president of the United States. Here's what they had to say. Why do you think that Senator Scott can set himself apart from the other candidates, such as former President Trump and Nikki Haley? Um, he gives us a message of hope. I've been following him since about 2016, and I think that's something that's really needed in our country right now. Um, I think that's something that's lacking if we see it in our young people. Um, he really brings that message of hope, and he also works across the aisle. Well, just I, I think the the point of view of being optimistic, I think, is helpful for the whole country. I, I'm sure he's going to do a, 
the budget where he'll spend less money than we're spending now. I think that's very important. Um, I'm enthusiastic about uh, Senator Scott's campaign. Um, I think we need somebody in the field who's uh, going to look forward, who's going to lay out a positive vision, uh, not look backwards with all the divisiveness we've been through in the past four to six years. And I think Senator Scott is, is the perfect man to do that. I worked with him in New York Life years and years ago. So when I saw that he was running, I figured I'd, I'd come down and give him some support and start donating to his campaign. What about him do you like? I like his values. You know, I like he stands up and speaks for what he believes in, and he doesn't hide his faith. Now, as for the support that we've seen for Senator Scott so far, he's gotten the endorsement from the number two Republican Senator John Thune. That's the minority whip. And Scott will also be traveling starting next month with Senator Joni Ernst, who's also in a leadership position on Capitol Hill. So this is just the beginning of a long campaign trail that Senator Scott has launched now as he's hopeful to emerge from a crowded GOP primary and hopefully challenge the Democrat nominee for the White House. Chris, back to you. A new political action committee wants to convince former Fox News host Tucker Carlson to run for president in 2024. It says only Carlson can defeat President Biden in the general election. Here's their ad. Republicans need a new leader, and Tucker Carlson is ready to lead. The head of the pack believes Carlson has a realistic opportunity to run for president and that other Republican candidates have issues. In a report from The Hill, an unnamed source connected to Carlson said that the former Fox host is not looking to run for office, and added that Carlson was critical of the PAC's efforts. The source also said the PAC's operators are trying to make a quick buck, and that no one should donate to the group. Former President Trump's social media company, Truth Social, has sued The Washington Post for defamation, and is seeking over $3.7 billion in damages. The lawsuit was filed by Trump Media and Technology Group, which owns Truth Social. It accuses the Washington Post of defamation in connection with a May 13th article. The company calls the article an egregious hit piece that poses an existential threat to Trump's company. The article is titled, Trust Linked to Porn-Friendly Bank Could Gain a Stake in Trump's Truth Social. Trump's company pointed out nine allegedly false claims from the article in its legal complaint. The Washington Post did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the lawsuit. All voters in New York's Nassau County were identified as Democrats on their voter ID cards. It didn't matter what political party they were actually affiliated with. The problem occurred because of a printing company error. The mistake triggered accusations about sabotaging elections ahead of the upcoming primaries. The printing company called it an isolated event stemming from human error. However, this isn't the first time that Phoenix Graphics committed such a mistake. In 2020, the company messed up absentee ballots for almost 100,000 voters in Brooklyn. The printing firm sent mailings to voters containing return envelopes with the names and addresses of other people. Phoenix Graphics said they are correcting the error and will send out new voter ID cards at no additional cost to taxpayers. The college student who tracks Elon Musk's private jet on Twitter has now turned his attention to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He has tracked one DeSantis trip so far. Jack Sweeney set up the account with the handle at DeSantisJet. It tracks the movements of DeSantis' government-owned jet. So far, he posted an image of a trip DeSantis took on May 17th from Florida State Capitol Tallahassee to Tampa and then back. 
The account follows days after Florida passed a new law that would shield travel records of governor, of a governor and other state leaders from being publicly disclosed. But Sweeney is still able to track the jet using publicly available data from a satellite platform. The technology is normally used to track aircraft and helps avoid collisions. Border states continue to see the impact of illegal immigration. A hospital in Yuma, Arizona has $26 million of unpaid expenses from treating illegal immigrants without medical coverage. That number doesn't include the cost of infrastructure. I spoke to Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, to get her take on the situation. Jessica Vaughn, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. How are hospitals at the southern border affected by illegal immigration? Well, hospitals along the southern border are affected in a unique way because the journey to cross the border illegally is a hard one and takes a toll on people. Uh, and it's especially a problematic now for hospitals because so many of the people are coming with a child. Under Biden administration policies, anyone who arrives with a child is going to be allowed into the country and released. And so um, children are fragile, much more fragile than adults are in many ways. And so they need medical care. If you have chronic medical conditions that can't be dealt with in your home country, if you get to the United States, you'll receive free care here in our hospitals. But the problem is, is that people, illegal migrants don't have insurance. They don't have funds themselves to cover the cost of these treatments. And so uh, this is difficult for all hospitals in the country, but especially the border hospitals because of the, um, the trauma that's involved in crossing illegally. And of course they're going to treat them. We're not gonna let people die uh, in our country, but there is a consequence not only in the local communities, but uh, around the country, there are implications to allowing this enormous illegal migration. What kind of implications, zooming out, looking at other hospitals across the country? Mm -hmm. Well, one hospital in the border area in Arizona, for example, near Yuma, uh, reports that in the last, since uh, 2021, when this started, they've incurred $26 million worth of care um, to migrants, and this is uncompensated medical care. So under federal law, um, the taxpayers pay for emergency medical care, which includes maternity care. But over the long run, as migrants spread out across the country, they're gonna take their needs for care to the communities where they end up settling. And there is no budget for anything other than emergency care, and there certainly is no budget either in the federal budget or especially not state budgets, to cover these expenses at the enormous level at which they've occurred because of this border crisis. So somebody's gonna have to pick up the tab. In the meantime, the hospitals have to do things like um, cut services. Uh, they're stretched to the max in some places. This may mean longer waits in emergency rooms. This may mean fewer resources to help um, the local resident population. All of this is um, rebounding throughout our communities and the bills are coming due, uh, but it's not clear where the money's gonna come from. Definitely it'll be us taxpayers. 
So, so coming back to hospitals, you know, wh what is the federal government doing to help these hospitals, and what do you think they could do? Well, the federal government can provide a limited amount of funding for the uh, to reimburse hospitals for emergency care to illegal migrants. That's federal law. And as I said, maternity care is including in, is included in that. But that's not going to cover the routine kinds of care that these illegal migrants are going to need and receive once they arrive at their destination. It's going to fall down on state and local taxpayers primarily. Um, I don't, you know, there simply isn't money within the federal budget to do this, especially now as we're in this conversation about limiting federal spending. Um, so it's a difficult situation. We don't want people to go without health care, but someone has to pay for it. And um, I, that someone should not be state and local taxpayers who did not have a say in this situation. Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, thank you. Thank you. Up next, responding to allegations of racism. The veteran who allegedly choked a homeless man to death in New York City did his first interview since the incident happened. We'll have more on that in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The veteran who allegedly killed the homeless man on the New York City subway is now speaking out. He opened up about allegations of racism in a new interview. Here are the details. U.S. Marine veteran Daniel Penny is facing criminal charges after he put a homeless man in a fatal chokehold in New York City at the start of the month. Penny did an interview with the New York Post saying the fatal altercation that took place on a subway train had nothing to do with race. In his words, I judge a person based on their character. I'm not a white supremacist. Everybody who's ever met me can tell you, I love all people, I love all cultures. Penny says he previously spent time in Guatemala and Mexico, feeling almost at home. As he put it, you hear so many bad things about these places. I just wanted to see for myself, and thankfully I was proven right that these people were always welcoming and friendly and treated me like family everywhere. Penny is being charged with second degree manslaughter, Penny had pulled Neely, a 30-year-old homeless man, to the floor and pinned him with a hold he learned during combat training, according to a video of the incident. Neely family attorney Lennon Edwards previously told reporters that Daniel Penny chose, intentionally chose, a technique to use that's designed to cut off air. That's what he chose. And he chose to continue to hold that chokehold minute after minute, second after second, until there was no life left in Jordan Neely. Penny was asked if he would do the same thing again in a similar situation, to which he responded, I live an authentic and genuine life, and I would, if there was a threat and danger in the present. Neely was reportedly threatening and screaming at other passengers in an aggressive manner. Penny's lawyers have said the veteran was acting in self-defense. Meanwhile, a give-send go fund for Penny has become the second largest fund in the site's history. The account is meant to help Penny pay his legal fees. At one point, it reportedly collected over $1,000 per minute. The account total was over $2.7 million on Monday morning. Americans over 65 are having a hard time paying for medicine. One in five say they had to skip or postpone taking their meds, according to a study by JAMA Network Open released recently. That's up from about one in seven in 2016. 
The study says this might be related to increasing drug prices. I wanted to learn more about this, so I spoke with Wayne Weingarten, director of the Pacific Research Institute's Center for Medical Economics and Innovation. Wayne Weingarten, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Why are older Americans having a harder time paying for medications? We have to remember that the, the drug pricing problem, it's a targeted problem. It's with the, the small minority of medicines that are very expensive. And just the natural cycle, as we get older, we require more and more of these medicines. So that drug pricing problem is just concentrated in people who are 65 and older. Understood. What can people do about it if they're struggling to pay for medication? But there's some direct things that people can do. You know, you can contact uh, the manufacturer. They often have different type of patient assistance programs. You know, also need, need to look at your benefit design, make sure that that's optimal in terms of, of, of what you need. Uh, and then we really need to push for the right policy reform so we can really get the system so it makes sense and people can't afford the medicines. Talk about the policy reform. What kind of policy reforms are you talking about? What we really need is both transparency uh, and we need to straighten up the, the way the drug pricing system works. Uh, and right now, Congress is actually working toward that. They're looking at these entities called pharmacy benefit managers. And what's really happened is a misalignment of incentives. And that misalignment has shifted costs onto patients. And that's the essence of the problem. So what we need to do is fix the drug pricing system. And that way, those costs won't be shifted onto to patients. And that'll help a lot with affordability. You know, in August, um, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. It was supposed to help reduce drug prices. Is that the case? Is it working? No, it, it's, it's not working. I mean, the problem with the Inflation Reduction Act is it's looking towards price controls. And you could say, in some sense, price controls, when you, when you actually mandate prices be lower, then they, they are, in fact, lower. But what you've done is you've taken that cost and it's manifested differently in terms of people will lose access and we're going to lose innovation. So that's just an alternative way of, of bearing the costs. So the Inflation Reduction Act is, it, it isn't helping with transparency. It isn't helping kind of fix the pricing system. So it's not going to help promote accessible, affordable medications. And that needs to be the goal, both accessible and affordable. You know, Democrats have talked about price controls on the oil industry. Are you hearing any conversation about those kinds of controls on the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, they're, they're still continuing to push for more and more price controls. There's a couple of bills in Congress right now that are looking to expand the price controls. Uh, and wherever you see price controls, there's always consequences. Look at rent control in New York City, and you look at you know, the quality of those apartments. That's just the natural consequence of price controls. And if we expand it, because it's getting its nose under the tent, uh, with pharmaceuticals, if we expand it, we're going to continue to see lots of those adverse consequences. So we, we really need to resist that urge and improve the pricing system, not look towards kind of these politically convenient but economically damaging policies. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow of Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. What's the purpose of academic freedom? A symposium held last week at the University of Chicago addressed that concept in light of academia's response to COVID-19 mandates. Here's the story. 
The symposium titled Academia's COVID Failures featured prominent medical, law, media, and political experts and students. They discussed the societal impact of the government's pandemic policies and the censorship of free speech and alternative views. The university experts who convinced government officials to implement their lockdown strategy. Lockdowners got what they wanted. Their policies were implemented throughout the nation in almost every state. Their policies failed to stop the spread. They failed to stop the death. The university's response to the whole COVID crisis really shows um, the failures of higher education to engage in critical thought um, and the way in which they not only ignored science but cracked down on free speech and academic freedom and everything else in pursuit of this crazy ideological agenda of theirs. When people hear about how ac academic environments like Stanford failed, uh, people will demand reform. Uh, p places like Stanford, like Chicago, like Harvard are, are very important places for uh, the discussion of controversial ideas. Uh, and if uh, places like that fail to allow that to happen, um, it hurts all of society. The messaging to us and to the world could not have been more clear. Um, anyone who speaks up, is a threat. They are a menace. They are potentially dangerous, maybe even deadly. Panelists proposed various strategies to restore trust in America's institutions and preserve the liberty of the American people. A strong declaration from the Supreme Court that these public-private censorship efforts we saw during COVID are unlawful is probably the best thing we can immediately use to ensure a right now to prevent future abuses of the First Amendment. There's never been a time in human history when the people who were censoring free speech were, that we look back and say, oh, those were the good guys. They're never the good guys. What is it inside each of us that some part of us causes us to want to allow ourselves to be suppressed at behest of being labeled something that our insecurities make us fear more than the loss of speech itself? That's the real threat to free speech. It's the threat that comes from within. To view the entire symposium, visit ntd.com. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. New York City has lost nearly a half million residents to other states. The population shift occurred between April 2020 and July 2022. Most of them left to settle in southern states. That's a 5.3% drop in the population of the nation's largest city. The biggest loss of residents occurred between 2020 and 2021. Only three U.S. cities surveyed during the same time frame suffered a worse population decline. San Francisco experienced a 7.5% loss, while Lake Charles, Louisiana lost 6.9%, and Revere, Massachusetts lost 5.9%. But New York City is still America's most populated city. More than 8.3 million people still call it home. Up next, Russia warns Western countries that supplying F-16 jets to Ukraine is an extremely risky endeavor. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak warns that China poses the biggest challenge of our age to global security and prosperity. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Russia has warned that supplying F-16 jets to Ukraine comes with enormous risks to Western nations. 
The Russian foreign minister says that includes raising already simmering tensions between the countries and Russia. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the latest developments. Russian Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko says Western countries continued to stick to an escalation scenario regarding the F-16s. In January, President Joe Biden said the United States would not supply Ukraine with the fighter jets. But on May 19th, Biden told his G7 counterparts that the U.S. will continue to do what it can to strengthen Ukraine's ability to defend itself. Including launching some new joint efforts with our partners to train Ukrainian pilots on fourth-generation fighter aircraft like the F-16. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed the U.S. decision on Twitter, saying it would greatly enhance Ukraine's army in the sky. Zelensky also said on Sunday that he was confident that Kyiv would receive supplies of F-16 fighter jets from the West. That is, we will have the planes. I can't say for now how many. It's not a secret. I don't know this myself. F-16s are supersonic jets that can be launched quickly in just a few minutes and shoot down enemy aircraft and offensive missiles. President Biden said on May 21st that Zelensky gave him a flat assurance about the F-16s. That they will not, they will not use it to go on and move into Russian geographic territory. Biden met with Zelensky at the G7 summit in Hiroshima. Biden also announced a new package of military aid of up to $375 million to Ukraine on Sunday. President Zelensky thanked Biden for the aid and for his help, leadership and support. I really didn't know the, the details, but I know that you gave us very big package during this year. It's more than 37 billion. My appreciations. We never forget. Thank you. Meanwhile, the Dutch government says the training of Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets should start sooner rather than later. This after U.S. President Joe Biden expressed support for the joint allied training program. EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Burrell said he hoped the next step would be to supply fighter jets to Ukraine, with Kyiv saying the F-16s are far more effective than the Soviet-era fighters it still uses. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak warned that China poses the biggest challenge of our age to global security and prosperity. He said the approach of the group of seven countries is about de-risking the situation rather than decoupling or cutting ties with China. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on Sunday warned of challenges posed by China after discussing how to tackle aggression from Beijing with Western allies. China poses the biggest challenge of our age to global security and prosperity. They are increasingly authoritarian at home and assertive abroad. The Prime Minister said the group of seven countries have recognized the systemic challenge that China poses to the world order. This is all about de-risking, not decoupling. And with the G7, we are taking steps to prevent China from using economic coercion to interfere in the sovereign affairs of others. The G7 leaders, which includes President Joe Biden, announced it would establish a new team to root out and counter Russia and China's use of economic coercion to influence nations' decisions. They also shared concerns about Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. Sunak said the leaders would work to reduce vulnerabilities in supply chains from China and protect their nations from hostile investment. The leaders also had conversations about ensuring that important technology 
pertinent to their country's security doesn't leak to China. China is banning the United States' largest microchip maker, Micron, from its major firms. The move is widely seen as retaliatory for sanctions imposed by Washington and its allies on China's chip sector. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. China's cyberspace regulators cited national security when it said that Chinese companies working on key infrastructure projects would be barred from buying Micron's products. The decision came seven weeks after the Cyberspace Administration of China kicked off a cybersecurity review of Micron's products. It said Sunday that the U.S. memory chipmaker had failed its network security review. It did not provide any details on what risks it had found. The Chinese regime's broad definition of critical information infrastructure could include sectors ranging from telecoms to transport and finance. Washington has imposed a series of export controls on chip-making technology to China and moved to prevent Micron's Chinese rivals from buying certain American components. The U.S. Department of Commerce said in a statement late Sunday that it firmly opposes restrictions with no basis in fact and that the action, along with recent raids and targeting of other American firms, is inconsistent with China's assertions that it is opening its markets and committed to a transparent regulatory framework. Micron gets around 10% of its revenue from China. Analysts say the larger chunk of Micron's products flowing into China are purchased by non-Chinese firms for use in products manufactured there. It's not yet clear if the ban will affect the company's sales to non-Chinese customers in the country. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we come back, Greece's ruling conservative political party wins parliamentary elections, but doesn't get the votes needed to form a government without collaboration with other parties. And birth rates in Europe are at record lows. The trend has continued for decades, but some say the COVID vaccine didn't help healthy births. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Greece's prime minister said today he will not seek to form a coalition government following this weekend's election. The move paves the way for a second vote in June that Prime Minister Mitsotakis hopes his conservative party will win outright. Greece's ruling New Democracy Party claimed victory in the country's parliamentary election on Sunday, but fell just short of an absolute majority to form a government on its own. In Athens, Greek Prime Minister and New Democracy leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis called the vote decisive. The result was a stunning boost for Mitsotakis, who is seeking a second term and has had to contend with a wiretapping scandal, a cost-of-living crisis, and a deadly rail crash in February that triggered public outrage. Sunday's vote was a blow to opposition leader Alexis Tsipras, the country's former prime minister, who called the result, quote, particularly negative for his Syriza party and said he contacted Mitsotakis to congratulate him on his victory. Several countries in Europe have hit a record low birth rate. Entity's France correspondent David Vivez spoke with a gynecologist who says pregnant patients who took the COVID vaccine have more problems. The data is now out on how the pandemic affected birth rates across Europe, which has long been trending downwards. Nations like Spain, France and Italy saw births continue to decrease. The rate is now the lowest it's been since data collection began. Other nations like Germany and Austria 
so positive trends turn around in 2020, with rates continuing to fall since then. Gynecologist Laurence Kayser says she's observed more health issues in France during and post-pregnancy. There are more fatal deaths in utero, that is to say babies who die late in pregnancy. We are also seeing an increase in neonatal mortality, so the children who have just been born. There is a problem, they have hemorrhages and problems of coagulation that we didn't see before. A German study found a strong association between the onset of vaccination programs and the fertility decline nine months after of this onset. The authors said this trend didn't correlate with unemployment, infection rates or COVID-19 deaths. Kaiser says she saw new issues with her patients after they received a COVID-19 vaccine. I see that two-thirds of vaccinated pregnant women have problems and that the anticoagulants, which allow their baby to grow up properly and the placenta to function until the end, pose problems. So there is at least a question to be asked about the impact of vaccines, how it impacts the level of hormonal development. The German study authors hypothesized that the drop in birth rates was not medical but behavioral, suggesting people waited to conceive until after being vaccinated. But the trend also shows up in maternal mortality. In the US, CDC and state data shows a peak in mothers' deaths in 2021 shooting up in the months after the vaccine rollout. I saw quite a few thyroid problems appear in women who had no problems whatsoever in their past. And suddenly they have thyroid problems, which impacts their menstrual cycles, which impacts fertility. The WHO website says the COVID vaccines are safe for pregnant women and their babies. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Up next, stress is an all-too-common problem in our fast-paced, modern lives. Stay tuned for tips to manage your stress and your overall well-being. The CEO and founder of luxury brand LVMH, Bernard Arnault, remains a driving force between the nearly $500 billion company. But many wonder which of his five children will take the reins one day. Here's a look at the family dynamics and why it bears an uncanny resemblance to a certain hit TV show. I'll play it on my plate. A magnate and patriarch, preparing his succession as carefully as he built his empire. Not Logan Roy, but the real world's richest man, Bernard Arnault. The Frenchman who built the world's biggest luxury goods company, all the while very personally raising, educating and evaluating his five potential successors. And because also I think my group is controlled by my family. So instead of looking every day at the stock market, I look for the next 10 years. All five Arnaud children work for their father. Delphine, the chair of Christian Dior, her brother Antoine, the CEO of Dior, and the three children from Arnaud's second marriage. Alexander, an executive vice president at Tiffany's, Frederick, who runs Tag Heuer, and the youngest, Jean, the director of development and marketing at Louis Vuitton's Watches division. C'est à la fois un père très attentif. 
He is at once an attentive father, a good father, but also a merciless boss. So the children had to work hard. He has a fairly clear idea of their qualities and their weaknesses, and when the moment comes, will be able to choose. The $500 billion LVMH dominates the world of fashion with some of its biggest names, like Christian Dior and Louis Vuitton. It was built through ruthless acquisition and, like Waystar, is diverse with vineyards, hotels, restaurants and newspapers. I have! You beat! But it is in the treatment of their children that the fictional and real characters diverge. Far from fostering discord, Arnaud has ensured harmony, but with a cold eye on business nonetheless. So thank you very much. The stakes are huge the value of the company, but also the power that it brings. Like Logan Roy, Bernard Arnault has cultivated his relationships with the powerful, acquiring a vast media empire and making LVMH a symbol in France. Its headquarters stormed by protesters only last month. But while Arnault has sought to protect his children, he's also made it clear what he expects of them. Of course, we understand the level of responsibility that is ours. The way we see things is that my father is super healthy and uh, going to work 10, 15, 20, 25 years. His five children are now working uh, together in different parts of the group, but we're very close. An empire carefully built and ultimately soon up for grabs, but so far without the family drama. Four out of five people reported feeling stressed at work. And it's not all in the mind. Let's take a look at a holistic approach to stress management. 75% of Americans reported experiencing moderate to high levels of stress. 80% of workers reported feeling stress on the job. And stress remains the number one health issue among teenagers. To address this concern, experts are emphasizing the importance of a holistic approach that considers the interconnectedness of the gut, brain, and nervous system. Naturopath, nutritionist, and health coach Sheridan Jenrick says a crucial aspect of stress management is food. Um, and I would always ask about the food that someone was eating and the quality of the food, not just how much or how often but the uh, environment that they're eating in as well. And the amount of people I used to see that would actually not be eating much all day long, they'd be having several coffees uh, or eating some just one meal a day of processed food. And then it was very difficult for them to relax their mind. Though food is where she begins her client's treatment, she emphasizes the importance of the nervous system. She says maintaining a healthy nervous system plays an important role in digesting food and as a result, overall well-being. And if we're in like that clenched tummy when we're eating and we're not relaxed, we're actually not able to break down the food we eat or absorb it very well or even let go of the waste. You know, so there's a process that should happen automatically when someone's well. Dr. Jenrick says taking care of ourselves is crucial in managing stress and fostering healthy relationships. Self-care practices such as meditation, movement, and proper nutrition can have a profound impact on our overall well-being. Food, meditation changed the way I thought, made me feel more positive, uh, and then I was able to sleep better, 
and also just manage the stresses. Dr. Jenrick adds that individual differences also play a significant role in stress management. Our genetic predispositions and sensitivities influence how we respond to food and nutrition. Understanding these factors through fields like nutrigenomics can help people make informed dietary choices that support their well-being. A lot of the information we're given about health is actually that one-size-fits-all message. And it's part of the reason why I think there's so much confusion with health. Before jumping into how to fix it, I help people understand they have to identify if they're a sensitive person, if they're really able to uh, interpret the signals that their body's telling them, or are they just ignoring the signals? Finally, Dr. Jenrick says it's important to recognize that stress management is a lifelong journey, embracing ancestral health practices, incorporating quality supplements by focusing on self-care, understanding the mind-body connection, and making informed choices. People can navigate stress more effectively and achieve optimal well-being. When we come back, a new exhibition in London explores contemporary versions of the traditional Indian clothing known as the sari. We'll take you there here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Traditional saris have been worn by South Asian women for thousands of years. A new exhibition opening today in London shows a new take on the timeless garment, bringing it into the 21st century. This opulent gold-embroidered sari was worn at the Met Gala by an Indian businesswoman. It's now on show at the Design Museum in London, where an exhibition features around 60 contemporary saris. This was designed by Sabia Saatchi, who's probably India's most celebrated uh, designer. Um, he's established a hugely successful business based on kind of bridal and luxury wear. The head of curatorial and interpretation at the museum said the sari had been traditionally associated with femininity and the domestic female body in the interior space, but that's changing now. Women have always worn the sari in kind of rural contexts, um, including when they're performing labour and quite physical activity, but that, that's now turning into a sort of fashion statement in some ways. Among the exhibits, there is an outfit half sari, half kilt. There's also one designed for a mountain climber. Similarly, this purple sari was worn by a woman who learned to skateboard in her 40s. The saris also showcase technical crafts. This garment is made of stainless steel wires stitched together and put onto a pre-stitched sari, giving it structure. The second section of the exhibition is called Identity and Resistance, um, and it's really about how individuals are expressing their own identity and their own ideologies through the way in which they wear the sari. This pink sari belonged to a member of a woman's rights group in rural northern India who are confronting issues such as domestic abuse. An art critic said he remembers saris only used to be worn by his mother or grandmother, but this exhibition brings the sari to the contemporary world. 
And what this exhibition does is it brings it back into the contemporary world. So we're seeing that saris can be co-opted. Yes, they're fashionable items. Yes, they're celebratory items. But they can also be worn by women who are playing cricket or riding skateboards or mountain climbing. And that's what you want to see, that the saris having this kind of renaissance. The Offbeat Sari exhibition runs until September. Lego fans and car lovers rejoice. A full-size Ferrari built entirely out of Lego blocks is now on display in central Denmark. Bill and Legoland unveiled the life-size Monza SP1 model. It was built in the Czech Republic, taking almost a full year. Ferrari designers helped with the construction process. The model weighs more than 1.4 tons. Over 380,000 Lego blocks made up the entire project, with the Ferrari wheels and steering wheel being the only original pieces. Visitors marveled at the working lights and the unique design of the Lego car. The Ferrari will be on permanent display in Billund. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, and you're watching NTD News, New York City.